Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who could borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. After calling us salt and light, using those metaphors of something that has a preserving agent in culture, uh, having a loving and wise and preserving influence, salt and light not drawing attention to themselves, but to something else, he ends that statement by saying, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, which would have caused everybody to swallow real hard, because in their view, nobody's following the law better than the Pharisees. And so this portion of the text is now Jesus putting righteousness on the ground. What does the righteousness look like that's not of dead faith, but of faith that is truly alive, of one who is sitting and basking in the love and the saving, scandalous grace of God? And so we come to this text here where he's putting it on the ground in practical application and uh, making it very, very tangible. So we're going to look at two things this morning um, that Jesus says ought to describe uh, those of us resting in his, the goodness and the grace of God. The first thing we want to look at is adopting generosity, uh, generous living as a lifestyle. Not as something that's a one-off event, not something that somebody draws our attention to an opportunity to be generous and then we think of it for the first time, but that it actually becomes something that marks our lifestyle. The second thing we're going to look at is seeking the good of those who do not seek our good. And that gets to the second portion of this text where he explicitly says, Um, that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So let's look at this. Firstly, adopting uh, generous living as a lifestyle. This speaks to tremendous maturity and security because you can't have generosity as a lifestyle unless you're convinced that you, through your generosity, will not end up in lack. So fundamentally, the people of God have this trust and this sense of security that they can give things away without any fear uh, that they are somehow going to be uh, coming to lack. The other thing I think that I encourage us to consider is the reordering of priorities and the reordering of loves. Because if we are highly committed to the accumulation of shiny things, whatever those shiny things are in our life, that we feel that if we only have this thing, it's going to make us happy and content and quiet the insatiable hunger in our soul, then every opportunity to be generous is now a potential barrier to getting the shiny thing. Generosity is very difficult 
if our loves are oriented around uh, the material in a way that is not appreciating what is good and beautiful, but elevating the good and beautiful to the ultimate place and causing this insatiable hunger in our soul. And it begins with an interesting pull from a law in the Old Testament that says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. And so let's begin here with this, why in the world Jesus uh, starts there before he moves on to that next phrase, turning the other cheek. And I'll explain why this speaks of a generous lifestyle. In God's law, uh, in Exodus 21, when God says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this is in the Mosaic law, the reason that this is actually given is because in the ancient world, jurisprudence was very difficult to do because um, there was just not the sort of accessibility that we enjoy now. So when we look at the text in our modern lens, we wonder what in the world does it mean? So I'm going to give you a modern-day parable to explain what was going on in the ancient world. Imagine that you've spent some money and you planted a garden, and the neighbor's dog comes over and digs up your garden. And so the appropriate jurisprudence for that would be you'd knock on your neighbor's door and you'd say, hey, I just invested some money and I, and I planted this beautiful garden, and your dog came over, and I wonder if we could have a discussion about possibly, is there, is there any way that you could um, replace the plants that were destroyed by the dog? That would be a very reasonable conversation to have that would be sort of a, an equity, eye for an eye, jurisprudence. Hey, here was the infraction, and I wonder if there could be some, uh, some appropriate response to the infraction, eye for an eye. What would be ridiculous would be you come out, you see that the neighbor's dog has dug up your tomato plants, so you grab a sledgehammer, you go out, you smash the taillights out of their car, and then you burn their shed down. And as the neighbor is drinking their cup of coffee, and they look out the window, and they see the flaming inferno of the, what was once their shed, and they come over and they knock on your door, and they say, what is going on? And you're standing there with the sledgehammer in your hand, and you're like, hey, your dog came over, dug up my tomato plants. Looks like we got a problem here. So that would be insanity. But in the ancient world, there was, there was a retribution that was happening on a regular basis amongst the nations that was absolutely absurd. And so what God was doing by saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was saying we've got to limit this retribution to create some sort of an ancient jurisprudence for the way in which we handle infractions among our people. That was where that came from. And so... It begins there, but I want you to notice how Jesus says it, and I mentioned this last week, where Jesus says uh, many times, you have heard it said, but I say. So he's making an ultimate statement of authority, divine interpretation of the law that transcends sort of human understanding as he, as he pits himself against the way that the religious leaders were sort of interpreting it. Because what they were doing was they took something that was intended to limit retribution, and they began to use that to justify personal and relational retaliation. So they began to relate to each other like, oh, well, it's an eye for an eye. And so there was no forgiveness, there was no grace, there was no dignity, there was no relating to people with a sense of, of civility. It just became a very retaliation, tit-for-tat way of relating to people. And so Jesus comes in, he says, this is lacking love and generosity and wisdom. And he comes in, and that's why he begins to say this. And that's why, then, the phrase shifts from quoting the ancient law to saying, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. It's not an invitation to invite abuse into your life. Jesus is not condoning abuse, because if you permit abuse into your life, you're not loving yourself, you're not loving the abuser, there's no love in that either. So Jesus isn't... Uh, condoning that by any means, by saying turn the other cheek, 
Uh, what he's actually uh, saying is we have to have a response that is inviting something new from the one who has offended us. So in the Hebrew culture, offering, and in many cultures, offering the cheek is uh, an act of hospitality and of, of closeness. So on my, on my dad's side, the Italian side, if we go and visit the Italian side, then my family will come into the house, and then there's 20 kisses on the way in, and then there's 20 kisses on the way out. It's just a cultural, you offer the cheek. And that, in the Hebrew culture, is the offer the cheek. To strike somebody on the cheek is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for an insult. You struck me on the cheek. So what's going on here is Jesus is saying, and we have two examples quickly, Lamentations 3 and Job 18. In Lamentations, it says, let him offer his cheek to the one who strikes, who fills them with insults. Job chapter 16, they scorn me with their mouths. They have struck me instantly on the cheek. Right? So what Jesus is getting at here, the call to turn the other cheek is the people of God who have received a scandalous grace, who know who they are, who are secure in their identity, don't feel like they need to respond constantly in retaliation. There's not just such a fragility there that they're just so quickly angered, but that they can, they're not so easily insulted and belittled and patronized and made to feel small. The most natural reaction is to just come to the rescue of your ego when these things happen. But by saying, don't just turn the other cheek, what Jesus is encouraging us to consider is don't get derailed by these things. Don't let your identity be shaken by these things. Don't strike back. Uh, respond in a way that invites a kiss. That can only happen with a lifestyle of generosity. And there can only be a lifestyle of generosity if there is a security and identity. This inviting a kiss, turning the cheek, this is the way of love. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way of the cross. And how in the world do we do that? Because that's pretty def- difficult. Well, we... It's difficult for all of us. We all fail at this. But we'll get there. And the reason I can confidently say we will get there is because the Sermon on the Mount, and I've said this a thousand times, and before I die, I'll say it a thousand more, this is not merely a prescription for the church. It is a description of what the fruit of the Spirit does and is doing. And so this is an invitation to consider that we can live in a new way. Fruit grows gradually. So gradually, its growth is imperceptible. But the growth is inevitable. And so when Galatians speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that's going to grow very, very slowly over the course of a lifetime. And it's going to look very, very different across all the seats in this room. Some of you will be great, have great maturity and growth in certain aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, and you will be embarrassingly immature, if you're honest with yourself and look in the mirror, in other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. True of me. I'm not preaching down to you. There's ways that I celebrate the growth of, uh, of the work of the Spirit in my life. I'm very thankful. I can look back on my life and say I've grown in certain ways. And then there are other ways. It's just frankly embarrassing that I, it, that I feel like I've been more mature until a situation pops up that just shows me, actually, you still have a long way to go. So, this generosity as a lifestyle. And then he begins to unpack that generosity, right? He gives us some images of it, driven by gospel security, right? Some of the images of it are, hey, somebody sues you for your toque, your tunic, sorry, your toque. (laughs) Reading with the modern Western lens, it gets you every time. Tunic, article of clothing worn closest to the skin. So Jesus is like, someone sues you for the clothes off your back. 
and uh, give him your coat. It's just it's a scandalous level of generosity. It's, it speaks of someone who's just not moved, just not derailed. They just don't feel like, what on my identity? Who am I now? And how dare you and ah? They just, uh, they're like, wow, your life must be in quite a state. I mean, life must be so terrible for you. You got to sue me for the, look, hey, have the jacket. This is where your life is at? They're just not moved by it. Incredible. Then he goes on. Hey, someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Many of you who've been in church for a while know that's a reference to Roman occupation. It's a political comment, right? Under the rules of Rome at the time, the Greco-Roman world, a Roman could walk up to any non-Roman at any point and say, hey, see my bag? You're going to carry this a mile for me. That was the law. They could do that. So Jesus is, look, just imagine if Jesus had preached this today. Wow, the pushback he would have got. Hey, if something under the current government regime requires you to do something, why don't you just go, just do it, and then go twice as far, because after all, it's not a threat to your identity. That is such weak preaching. Oh, my goodness, the weakness. The, oh, we're worshiping Caesar. What are we doing? It's all on fire. It's all coming down. Breathe. Relax. Who's in control here? You need me to carry, you, you, this government regulation requires me to do this thing? I can do that. You're not my king. I already have a king. And his kingdom is going to outlast yours. So I'll carry this bag. Just not moved by it. Just not derailed by it. Not losing sleep over it. My friends, we should all sleep like babies on election night. Now some of you do sleep like babies on election night. I don't mean like that. I mean metaphorically. My Messiah didn't win the election and the apocalypse is upon us. Breathe. It doesn't matter who, which horse, what. Look at Canadian history. We've toggled back and forth for 150 years. You're a conservative? Relax. It's going to be your turn soon. You're liberal? Worry about it. The liberals are going to... The liberals... The conservatives have had their turn and then you'll have your turn. Everybody breathe. 150 years. Just carry the bag. Don't echo the frustration and the anger and the anxiety and the restlessness of the culture. We have a better message, much more profound message. We have good news that transcends the cultural moment, the political climate. Go two miles. But we can't go two miles unless we're secure and quieted and joyful and at rest in the true king. And then he goes on, he says, give to the one who begs from you. Don't hold, withhold from the one who would borrow from you. That's a financial comment, right? People who are just in tremendous lack. And he's like, God will take care of your needs. Spoiler alert, get to Matthew 6, right? Look at the birds, look at the flowers, go for a walk, look at nature. God has you. That's where this is headed. Let's move on to the second thing. Seeking the good of those who don't seek our good. Verse 43, love your enemy. So we know that God's law explicitly commanded since the, uh, the time of Moses to love your neighbor. That was the law. The Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as thyself. The great Shema. The children of Israel said that for thousands of years. But notice what happened by the time Jesus rolls around. Notice the interpretation of the law. Jesus says, you've heard it said. Where do they hear that from? You've heard it said, (laughs) 
Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Wow, where did that interesting interpretation of the law come from? It came from the religious leaders. People don't have their own copies of the scrolls. Most of them are illiterate. They are relying on the interpretation of Scripture by the religious leaders. And by the time Jesus comes around, the prevailing, the prevailing teaching that he is now pointing his finger at and saying this is wrong is, no, you don't love those who love you and then oppose and hate all those who don't agree with you. who are outside your club, outside the camp, outside the faith community. Very provocative. Let's consider this. Let's look at this for a second. The, the, the religious leaders are inferring the opposite. You know, hate your, hate your enemy. You know, what is it that makes a community bigoted? Uh, when I was a kid in the 80s, the prevailing conversation in sort of Christian apologetics was, is God real? That's not really the question any of your uh, neighbors or coworkers or, or uh, fellow students are asking. They're not really that concerned about whether or not God is real, so much as they are wondering if God is good. Because they are wondering about this because there are, um, sadly, some, you know, there are examples throughout Christian history and today where the church has not been loving and caring and loved those outside the faith community. They have loved themselves and hated everybody on the outside. So what is it that makes a community hateful or bigoted? See, See, the interesting cultural narrative around Tolerance is, ah, well, the way to solve the bigotry and the hatred is everybody just agree with everybody else. We all assimilate all of our values into one big pool, and we all agree on all the same stuff, and we all check the same check boxes, and we all say that everybody's right. And I know that I'm being facetious in my tone in the way that I'm saying that, but I'm just saying that it sort of boils down to not holding a strong sense of conviction because that could possibly lead to bigotry or hatefulness. I would argue that's not true. Having a strong sense of conviction and belief and value that contradicts somebody else does not inherently make you hateful or bigoted. What makes a community, any community, hateful and bigoted is how they treat the people outside that community. So therefore, it is possible for you and I to hold completely opposite uh, political or socioeconomic views and love each other and be caring and give each other respect and dignity because even though you and I might belong to two different thought camps... I can be loving to everybody outside my thought camp. Let's bring it into the Christian faith conversation. How is it possible that we are preaching right now, gathering and worshiping in the belly of the municipal beasts in this municipal building? Praise God for it. Don't know how long we'll be able to be here, but praise God for it. Listen, we can uh, hold to historical Christian um, convictions, the truth of God's law, not make any apologies for the convictions that we hold, and ensure that we relate with love and respect and give dignity to everybody who disagrees with everything that I would teach up here. It is the difference between having a particular position and a posture. And Jesus demonstrated the most holy position and the most loving posture simultaneously. So this is informative now. This is what Jesus is getting at with his followers. What is the way in which you relate to the surrounding culture? Can we love those and seek the good of those who don't seek our good. This isn't even new. This is, of course, Jesus is recounting what God wanted right from the beginning, from Genesis 22 with Abraham, when he says, through you all the other nations will be blessed. So the goal from the beginning was always, how do I get my goodness and my love and my grace to those outside the actual faith community that they may be drawn in by the grace and the love of the faith community. So that's Genesis 22. You fast forward into the exile 
of Daniel and his friends, and by the time they're in Babylon, God explicitly says to them, seek the good of Babylon, seek the good, seek the shalom of the city, which imagine how mind-blowing that would have been if you had been a person of Jewish descent. For millennia, you are taught and told to seek the shalom of Jerusalem, and then God says, seek the shalom of Babylon, not convert Babylon, not change Babylon. You're not going to convert Babylon. You're not going to change Babylon. God says, I'll deal with Babylon, and he did. Every kingdom has its heyday, and every kingdom has its end. And, you know, pin it to world history, and Alexander the Great takes an army from Mesopotamia all the way to, or sorry, from India to uh, Mesopotamia, and Hellenizes the whole entire world, and then his kingdom has its day. And then by the time we get to here, his kingdom's over, and now it's Rome. And so Jesus is explicitly saying, can we seek the good of those who are not seeking our good by loving those who don't agree with us in any way? You have heard it said, hate your enemies. Jesus says, no, you're misrepresenting God's heart. You don't do it in a escape hatch. And... Uh, You don't baptize this by saying, well, you know, I'm just standing up for my Christian convictions. No, if you're going through life like it's a religious Super Smash tournament, something went wrong with your theology. Something went sideways. Because Jesus is never taught. Posture yourself against this culture like absolutely every single thing is a hill to die on. And you're just going to duke it out to the end. And this isn't weak, and some of you might be, might be concerned. Oh my goodness, am I in a church with a preacher who's soft on sin and this is weak? What about repentance? What about repentance, preacher? Yes, repentance. Let's talk about repentance. Repentance is turning. So the question is, what provokes turning? See, as we continue to explore the life of Jesus, we'll see that though he's transcendent, he's tender, though he's powerful, he's patient... He is wise and he has a careful, holy commitment to the wisdom of God's law, hand in hand with a relentless extension of God's grace. Yes, repentance. I'm all about repentance and calling people to repentance. But what would call anybody to repentance? What called you to repentance? Romans chapter 2, Paul makes use of this wisdom and he talks about repentance. He says, we know that God's judgment is coming on sin. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on those who sin, when you also sin... You show contempt for the riches of God's kindness. You show contempt for his forbearance and his patience, not realizing that it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. So this isn't about flexing and watering down conviction. It's about having an unapologetic commitment to conviction and a posture of great patience and grace and love for enemies praying for those who persecute us and carrying this posture into the culture. The Pharisees, they were not proclaiming the majestic, redemptive plan of God. They were not offering love and grace and soul-quieting renewal. And they were not calling people to bend their knee in repentance to receive God's kindness. They omitted the message of kindness and they made a beeline to the message of judgment and they hated their enemies. And they didn't seek the good of those who weren't seeking their good. And you might think, oh, I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. The context of this, remember, is salt and light. So on the one hand, salt is useless if it, if it is the same properties as the meat. Useless, right? If we have all the same values as the culture, useless. But on the other hand, the salt sitting in a pile that's not being worked into the meat is also useless. That's what Jesus is getting into here. 
How do we work ourselves into the meat, metaphorically, of culture and do this in a loving and a wise and a, and, and a, a winsome way? Now, I'm no culinary expert, but I'm pretty sure that if you have some meat that needs some salting and you just pour the salt in a pile, I'm confident, I feel like I can even say certain, that the salt will, sitting there, will, the meat will not just begin to wiggle its way across the cutting board and salt itself. I'm so sure of this. Is there anybody in culinary school that could firm? Because I just feel like I need to stay in my, my lane as a theologian and just not... Verse 46, he says, love those who love, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's the same. Anybody's doing that. Verse, verse 43, he shows God's common grace. He shows how God loves his enemies. It's right there. Can you see it? In that line, he's like, common grace. I'm going to give sun. I'm going to give rain to the just and the unjust. I'm going to move heaven and earth for 2,000 years, my friends, you can go anywhere on the planet, draw a cross in the sand, and humanity would be like, yep, we know what that is. God is not hiding himself, but in his great grace, showing love for his enemies from the beginning. Since Genesis 3, we are all the enemies of God. Romans chapter 3, nobody seeks God, nobody wants God, there's nobody righteous, you're not righteous, I'm not righteous, none of us are righteous. And what has God done from the beginning? Sought to give himself to those who don't deserve him in scandalous grace. This is how God is related to his enemies from the beginning, from the jump. And so he's calling now his church to relate in this way. You know, I'm going to close with an, an, an image here that I hope is encouraging to you. And it uh, comes from a theologian named Kristen D. Johnson. And she's a professor of theology at, uh, and Christian formation at Western Theological Seminary. And she talks about how the, the scriptures often relate to the church as trees. And she says, you know, a tree has the capacity to take in potentially harmful gases and then offer life, offer, give, offer life-giving oxygen in return. The tree improves the air quality for all people, not certain people, not their people, all people. And so Psalm, Psalm chapter 1, we're called the trees planted by the rivers of living water, nourished by the, the law of God, called to minister and nourish others, the leaf that doesn't wither, bearing fruit in right season, right? So therefore, we don't water down our convictions or adopt the cultural convictions, but what we do is we love and we, we, we love God and we keep God and we love our neighbor and we pr- improve the air quality through our love of Jesus for everybody else in, uh, in the city. Jesus culminates all of this into the conclusion of his interpretation of God's law in verse 48. Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you say, oh man, I was being so encouraged until the end. Be perfect. Good night, everybody. I'll see you next Sunday. Crushed. In the Greek, perfect is teleos. And teleos is the trajectory to perfection. It means to, to come to a state of completedness. He says, you, my followers, have to come to a state of completedness. We won't, of course, until the return of Christ. But between now and then, there's this desire for congruence. There's an intentionality. This is what the heart of saved by grace wants. To live into the teleos. This trajectory of of God's goal. God has a teleos. This is what God's law has always pointed to, the teleos. It's not just like, hey, let's give some law to mitigate the wayward hearts and the wayward designer, de- desires of humanity. We need some laws to, like bumpers in the, in the, put some bumpers in of the law in the bowling alley to keep the church from going in the gutter. No, no, that's not what the law is for. The law is, the teleos is to point to the glory of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the redemption of God, so that we desire that and want to live into the teleos. It's where we get our English word 
uh, it comes from telos, which is where we get the English word telescope. So how do you use a telescope? you got to zero that thing in with tremendous intentionality. And the more that you zero in the telos, um, the greater the clarity. And so Jesus is saying is that for those of us who've received God's forgiveness, who've turned and are followers of him, ah, this is what we want. We want to live into that new humanity. Therefore, we want to put off our sin. We want to put off old ways. We want to put on new humanity. We'll fail every single week in some way. We will all fail. But we desire him. We love him. We're following a king. And so then we, make, we avail ourselves of God's goodness and of God's grace. We'll, we'll go to his word. We will meditate on his scripture. We will pray in our homes. We will gather together. We will have the Lord's table. We will do corporate confession. We'll do all of these things because we recognize these things, to borrow a phrase from uh, philosopher James K. Smith, this is the gymnasium of the soul. So how fitting that we meet in, a, meet in a physical gymnasium. This is the gymnasium of the soul that God has given to begin to work out um, the goodness of uh, his grace and his children. So may we be a church that adopt generous living as our lifestyle. When we're insulted and belittled and patronized and made to feel small, and our most natural reaction is to come to the rescue of our ego, may we not be derailed and strike back. May we turn the cheek when it's in our power to give. May we be generous. May we be a church who seeks the good of those who are not interested in our good. When decisions are made relationally or vocationally or politically that contradict our Christian convictions, may we not relate to societal change with disdain or anger or exasperation, posturing ourselves for battle against our neighbors, but may we love our neighbors. And in doing so, may they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven so that by God's grace, they would call him their father in heaven. Let's pray.